Good evening, saints. Grace and truth are yours, and you are righteous in the sight of God through the merits of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In that peace, let us begin our midweek Advent series. There's a, a little Chinese legend that's told about a, a Chinese farmer that had, he was a single parent with one son, and he went out and bought a horse for his son, and the neighbor came over and he said, oh, that's good, you got a horse for your son, and he said, you say too much. And it wasn't long and that horse broke out of the stall and he ran away and he didn't come back right away. And the neighbor came over and said, oh, that's bad. Your horse ran away. And he, the farmer said, you, you say too much. And a couple of days later, the horse came back and brought another stray horse with it and went right into the corral and they shut the gate behind him. And the neighbor came over and said, hey, you got two horses for the price of one, that's good. He said, you, you say too much. And he gave the stray horse to his son to ride, but it was a wild Mustang and he tried to break it and it bucked him off and he broke his leg and the neighbor came over and said, oh, that's bad. He said, you say too much. And then there was a, a war broke out on the edge of their region and the king said, all able-bodied young men have to go to war to fight to protect our borders and thousands of young men lost their lives but the man, the farmer's son, stayed home because he was lame. He had a broken leg and the neighbor came over and the farmer said, don't say anything. I get the feeling that that little story is trying to give us when I read the long story of the Bible. And I think you do too. The more you get into the story of the Bible, you feel like if I judge this situation on its own merits right now, I'll be saying too much. You can be looking at a time in history like the judges, somewhere in the judges, and you can be like, this is hopeless, it's terrible, it's dark, and then some great man rises up. Or on the other side, you can be thinking, things are going so well and so great, and then some really bad stinker enters the story. And you just think too much, you say too much. Let me illustrate this in the story of Israel in the Old Testament when they asked for a king. We want a king, they told Samuel. Like all the other people, that'll be a good thing, they said too much. God gave him a king. He was a head taller and more handsome than anybody else in Israel. His name was Saul. And you say, well, that's good. He was a handsome, strong, smart man. Well, he was way into himself and that was his nemesis and that would be bad. But really that was good because then God went out looking for a man after his own heart and he found David and here comes Goliath, the big giant from the Philistines and he's going to take over God's, you know, he's humiliating God's people and challenging them in the valley and saying bad things about God and Israel and you say, that's bad. Oh no, that was good because David then came to the surface and everybody gets to see his heart and David with God's help killed Goliath. And you say, well, that's, and he became famous for that. David has killed his 10,000s. And you say, well, that's good. No, that was bad because Saul got jealous and tried to kill David over and over, chased him for eight years. And you say, well, that's bad. But no, that was good for David because it changed him into the man that God wanted him to be as king. And he learned so much about faith and walking with God and so much about people and himself as well. 
And David became king. And you say, well, that's good. He became king. No, it kind of got bad because then he, it all went to his head and he exploited it. And he had Uriah killed and took Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, as his own. And you say, well, that's really bad. But Uriah went to heaven and Bathsheba became the mother of the next king who was, there was no one greater than Solomon in the history of Israel. You say, well, that's really good. Well, it's kind of bad because Solomon exploited that and he had thousands of women. He was a philanderer and he let them pull his heart after other gods. And you say, and then the prophet came up and said, because of this, we're going to, God's going to split your kingdom. Ten tribes are going to leave and only two are going to be left. And you say, well, that's bad. Well, it turned out pretty good because those people were so messed up that they just went their own way and God sent the Assyrians and he took northern Israel away and Judah was protected you say, well, that's good, except that Israel, Judah had some bad kings and they started going bad, badly and things were not going well with the spiritual life of Israel, even though they had the temple and God sent the Babylonians and he carried them off and they burned the city. And all the family trees of Judah and Benjamin and the 10 lost tribes, all the family trees were cut off at the ground level. you know much at all about Israel and Jewish people in the Bible and up till today, genealogy is very important. And it's very important in Bible times, it's very important about the theology of Jesus being the savior of the world. Everything seems to be wrapped up in genealogy. If you've been following my morning prayers, we're going through Ruth and how that, that whole story is to show how God preserved Naomi's family line and Boaz was the father of David eventually, right? And all the family trees were cut off. Have you ever seen a clear-cut part of the forest where they, they go in and cut all the trees down? It looks like a, an ugly, messy, trashy desert. Death, bad. Isaiah the prophet was sent in the time of Judah to tell them about the judgment of God that would bring the cutoff of all the family trees. Right before our little Bible text from chapter 11, he says it's gonna be so bad that so many young men are gonna, of Israel and Judah are gonna die. That, that seven women will be without a husband and they'll go, all, they'll, they'll, all seven of them will descend on one man and say, just give me your family name. We'll be like concubines to you. Isaiah said that. It'll be that bad. By the way, I raced past King David and Solomon and we're on that stump there. So you can go to the next slide. Um, here's what Isaiah says. The family trees of Israel and Judah are so cut down that you cannot even trace them. But from the family tree that was cut off of David's father, who was David's father? Jesse, the family tree of Jesse, a root will be on the side and a little, you know, go back to the picture, a little branch will grow up. And he said, that's gonna be something good coming out of something bad. And the picture that we put on our folder and the picture you got on the screen, it looks like something little, little bit good. You've, you've probably seen that growing out of a stump somewhere in your life. And you've thought, do I really go ahead and kill it again? Or do I let it fight its way up? try to figure it out, right? Because it's just got a little bit of good going on there. We have a tree at the corner of the parking lot that looks kind of like that. 
right? Now, this is not a little good thing. This is God whispering to his Old Testament people, although he was going to, and he did have all those family trees cut down. He's, he's talking about the Savior. In chapter 4, it began, and in chapter 11, we're about to look at, it, is, it becomes a full picture God starts talking about Jesus Christ as the branch. And that's why the Christmas carol that we just sang, Behold, a branch is growing. It comes from out of the second verse, Isaiah hath foretold it. Chapter 4, chapter 11, chapter 12. And then, 100 years later, Jeremiah picks it up and talks about the branch. This was a deal going on in the minds of the people, but they had to cling to it in faith because everything looked what? Bad. They were a little bitty remnant of people. They had stories of atrocities and death. It was like Jews today talking about the Holocaust of their grandparents. That was the Holocaust of the Babylonians and everybody's lives and histories were wrecked and many could not trace their family lineage. And what was the big lineage that God had said many kings earlier needed to be traced? It was David, right? Because he said to David, Messiah, the anointed one, will come from your family line. You know what the problem is? David's family line has been sequestered into oblivion. You think about all the attention that the royal family of England gets. Imagine how the Israelites would want to know about the royal family of David. You can't even find it. This is really what bad. So let's look at the prophecy now. Go to the first verse. This is the main verse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From the roots, a branch will bear fruit. Talking about Jesus. And so here's what happened. Mary and Joseph are both from the line of David. They're in the family tree, but they're part of the descendants that have come back and not even settled down in Judea, where David was. They've settled up in the north in Galilee. They're little strains of David's blood, royal blood is running through their families. And it's not even the Jews that have anything at all to do with getting them to Bethlehem. It's a Roman up in Italy having a census and he prunes them out of Galilee and pruning his heart on a branch, right? And heart on a tree. And it's hard. She's nine months pregnant and she's a virgin. And you go, it's bad. She has an, she's having an unwed pregnancy. Oh no, that's good because the, Isaiah had foretold that. They say, well, it's bad that they have to go down there at nine months pregnant and go down to Bethlehem. No, it's good because Bethlehem is of the town of, of David because they are what? Remember Luke 2? Of the house and the line of David. So for Luke to write that to Jews, to hear that, that this little insignificant couple that has royal blood running through their veins and nobody really knows it, how would you know it? Well, in the census, they went to Bethlehem because they were from the lineage of David. The root growing up off the stump of Jesse. Jesse with his eight sons should have had thousands of royalty, right? And yet, like all of Israel, all those trees were cut off and it's really bad, but it brought something really good, which was we could focus and find who was the savior of the world, which is savior of you and me. 
And when he came, Jesus, what would he be like? Isaiah told us what he'd be like, and he, lots of prophets did, but let's look at the next verse. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. What part of Jesus' life does that make you think of? Yeah, at his baptism where the Holy Spirit descends on him. Okay, but don't forget, he was conceived in his mother by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and I, this is not the only place Isaiah talks about the spirit of the Lord being involved in Jesus' life. It shows up again in the Songs of the Servant in chapter 42. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And this is what the spirit would bring him, wisdom and understanding. And where was Jesus when he was 12? Playing video games. No, wowing the people down at the temple, right? With wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. People would come to Jesus to get their problems solved, right? Remember the rich young ruler and Jesus could see into his heart what he needed to hear and all the many other people where he could, with his counsel, even if it was hard, saying that he would give them and the might that he had, healing the sick, raising the dead, blowing people down with his voice in Gethsemane, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jesus knew the Father. If you ever want to try to get where he's talking about that quite a bit, go to John chapter 8. He says, I know what I'm talking about because I was in heaven with the Father, and I know the Father, and I do everything that the Father wants, and when I say something, that's because the Father wanted me to say it. He knew God. He had a spirit of knowledge. He was perfectly confident that what he said was what God would say. And he had a fear of the Lord that drove him to obedience, a godly fear, a fear and respect and love and admiration of the Father. And so he could say in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. And he'll delight in that fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. When he was at the house of Simon up in Galilee, he was a Pharisee. What did Simon see come into his house uninvited? The town prostitute. She's, he saw with his eyes. What did Jesus see? A woman who had faith that God was gracious through Jesus Christ. He said to Simon, she's crying because she's thankful much that she was forgiven much. He could see beyond appearance. And that's just one example that you can find 50 in the Gospels. He will not decide by what he hears with his ears because he could read the hearts of all people. So people would ask him a question and, and you've probably done this where you've read in the Gospels, someone asked Jesus a question and the answer he gives doesn't match the question in the way it was asked. And you go, what is that? The guy was, he was riddleliculous, right? He, he had riddles in his words. Actually, he was usually, you can tell, usually, he was answering the question they should have asked, not the question that they asked. He didn't judge by what he heard with his ears. He judged by what they needed to know. Go to the next one, next slide with verses four and five. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. And with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Not based on politics of the survival of the fittest. He will really help them with what they need. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Talking about judgment day. And the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked with them. And righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness will be around his waist. 
And here's where the Christ shows his glory the most. If righteousness and faithfulness were, his, were just his way of judging us, then he would be to be the most feared ever because he would see everything about us and he would have to be faithful to the Father and say to all of us, go to hell. But the righteousness that he brought around his waist was a righteousness that he would earn for us to give it to us and a faithfulness to stick to the task of saving the planet. Even when Peter said what to him, his friend Peter, what did Peter say? The Christ should never go down to Jerusalem and die on a cross the way you're telling us. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're mindful of the things of men. He stayed on faithfully on the task of saving us. He knew he had to go there to pay the price. So you wouldn't have fear of his justice because the one that's going to judge all people has scars on his hands. And he just wants us to believe in his grace. I started off by telling you about the Chinese story. I told you about a part of the story of Israel where it looked really bad, but it was actually really good. And I mentioned that from one of the worst parts of Israel's history, God brought the greatest good, the shoot off of, of the stump of Jesse. This good coming out of bad is not anywhere in the Bible more present and more glorious than in the badness of the cross and the goodness that comes from there. Think about Jesus. He had to watch his mother watch him die. His friends abandoned him, betrayed, and denied knowing him. His own people were the ones that demanded to the not his own people that he be put to death. And those that were not his people, when they put him to death, found the least humane way possible. And instead of just putting him up on the cross, they preempted it with torturous flogging, thorns on the brow, beating with the stick. And then there were these embarrassing political leaders like Herod who tried to make sport of him and the purple robe and the sign above his head. And it's like his, his emotions and his reputation were just as crucified as his body. And it looks really, really bad. But it's really, really good. That's why we call it Good Friday. Because everything's been paid for. Everything is gone from the guilt of your life. There's nothing up to the present that you can't bring to him. And he says, I've already done it. I've already paid for it. Just bring it. He wants you that badly. And it's good because we live in a constant state of renewal then, right? And if that's the way God treated Israel and good came out of bad, and if the greatest good came out of the biggest bad, then what about what's bad in your life right now? What about a marriage that feels like a tree that's been cut down or a job that isn't working or a relationship that you just have lost all hope is going to get any better or a money problem that's got no answer or whatever it is that haunts you and keeps you awake at night and you're saying as you're laying there in your bed this is really bad 
No. God's going to make it really good. Because what he did for Israel, he did to Christ. He still does for his people. And you know the verse. We know that in all things, say it with me, God is working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Don't say too much to yourself or to other people. Just believe. Just believe. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for teaching us tonight that you are the God who brings the greatest good out of the greatest bad. And help us to live in that faith and trust that when we stare into the darkness of what's going on in our life. Help us to light the Christmas lights of the beautiful story that how you bring the greatest good out of the darkest times. Help us to find meaning and purpose in this Christmas as we go through these meditations from Isaiah. Amen.